And with that, would you please open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. This last Tuesday evening, I taught in uh, our Generation Bible College class. Uh, I'm teaching a class this semester on the life of David. And I began my time talking about that section of the life of David because uh, yesterday evening we were considering uh, David and Goliath. And part of the, the difficulty of teaching and really learning from a story about David and Goliath is that it's something that we are so familiar with that it's so easy for it just to put our minds on automatic pilot when we get to it. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. And, and really not to engage with the story with brand new eyes. Well, isn't that true of what we're going to encounter over the next several weeks on Wednesday nights studying through the Gospel of Luke? We're talking about the events leading right up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Tonight we're going to talk about the Last Supper. And, and I I'll, would guarantee that almost every one of you, I don't know if each and every one of you, but almost every one of you, you feel, okay, I know what that's all about. And, and you probably do. But you know, don't you think there's aspects and angles of it that you need to consider all over again tonight? And I just pray that nothing would be hindered from your prior knowledge of these things that would keep you from receiving something from the Lord tonight. So let's just sort of, not actually, but mentally, prepare ourselves to come into holy ground here. You know, take off our shoes. Don't do it literally. (laughs) But just figuratively, prepare ourselves for some holy ground right here. Verse 1, Luke chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. The time was significant. This indicates that it was coming close to Passover time. And Passover, of course, was that annual festival that the Jewish people celebrated and still celebrated commemorating their deliverance from Egypt. It it was a yearly festival that was meant to remember when God, through the plagues and through his power, set them free from their slavery in Egypt. Now, because this was a major feast that the Jews celebrated, many people from all over the area came to Jerusalem. Thousands of people came to Jerusalem as pilgrims, as visitors to the Holy Land. This even happens today. You know, tourism to Jerusalem is nothing new. It's been happening for thousands of years. Now, many of these people who came were from the region of Galilee. Remember, Galilee was a region separate from Judea, and it was north of Judea. Jesus did most of his ministry in Galilee. That's where he was the biggest name. That's where he had the most fame and attention. And many of those people among whom Jesus was famous and gained a lot of attention were in Jerusalem at this time. He had a lot of partisans on his side. Therefore, it was especially dangerous for the religious leaders to try to seize Jesus publicly. To publicly seize Jesus, to publicly arrest him and take him who knows where, would have been inviting a riot or at least a great rebellion against the religious leaders. And they wanted none of it. I mean, look at it. It says it right there in verse 2. It says this. For they feared the people. Friends, I find this remarkable. It's remarkable that they did not fear God. (laughs) They're, They're ready to arrest and crucify. Well, let's be 
technically correct, turn over to the Romans for crucifixion. They're, they're, they're ready to arrest and turn over the Messiah himself. They don't fear God, but they feared the people. And you know, there's always something about that, isn't it? That, that if you fear the people, you probably won't fear God, not the way that you should. Now look at here, starting at verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. You see, they were absolutely fine with arresting the Messiah. That didn't bother them at all. But what they wanted to make sure they could do it was in a secluded place, away from the multitude, which was not an easy thing to do because Jerusalem was swollen with people there celebrating the Passover. But did you notice that very frightening line that begins verse 3? Then Satan entered Judas. Look, there's no doubt about it. Satan prompted and perhaps even guided Judas in his crime. Now we need to be very careful here because this does not diminish the personal responsibility of Judas one bit. Because understand, none of this was against Judas's will. Does anybody think for a moment that here you have saintly, supportive, loving Judas. Oh, all I want to do is help Jesus and support him. And mean old Satan came along and turned his heart away from Jesus. No, no. Judas turned his heart away from Jesus. And then Satan came and prompted him and guided him to do this wicked work. But Luke shows this here. For a very important reason. He's showing us that the real enemy of Jesus here was Satan. Yes, you could say that Judas was his enemy. But that's not the real story behind it. The real story is that this is a battle between Satan and the Son of God. And he decided to betray Jesus. Now many people have wondered throughout history about the motives of Judas. Because the scriptures frankly are not clear on this. Although we are going to look about as clear as the scriptures get on it in just a few moments. The scriptures aren't entirely clear. And some people thought, well why did Judas betray Jesus? And some people have tried to advance this almost romantic or even heroic notion of Judas in this. They say, oh, well Judas actually meant well. You see, Judas believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he felt like Jesus just needed like a push to reveal who he really was. And so Judas would kind of give him that push and see Jesus, if I put you on the spot, then you'll really show that you have the goods and you'll reveal yourself as the glorious Messiah that we've all been waiting for. There have been people who thought that. There are some people who think that Judas was in some ways wounded by his feelings. And what do they mean by that? Well, it's very interesting. If you notice there in verse 3, it says Judas surnamed Iscariot. Did you know that we don't know exactly what that means? We don't. Now, I'll give you the two leading suggestions for what Iscariot means. It may mean that he was from a village named Kiroth. Is Kiroth, of Kiroth. And Kiroth was a village in southern Judea. And if this was the case, it would be sort of interesting. It would make Judas the only disciple who was not a Galilean. 
And maybe he just felt set apart. Maybe he felt different. Maybe he felt like he wasn't one of the regular group or something like that. And maybe he just kind of felt excluded and hurt. And people think, well, that's why he betrayed Jesus. Well, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe there was an element of that. There's another suggestion having to do with the name Iscariot. Some people think the name Iscariot is linked to the word Sicarius, which meant assassin. And it was a connection to the Jewish zealots who carried out underground or guerrilla warfare against the Romans. Maybe Judas was a radical sort of, well, let me just be honest. I mean, maybe. This is all speculative, of course. But we would call him today a terrorist. Maybe he was of a terrorist faction that was so disappointed that Jesus wasn't doing more to advance the cause of Jewish independence that he said, that's it, I'm done with them. But can I tell you this? (laughs) We do know this. Judas was greedy. Judas was a thief. People love to spin out elaborate or, or, or sometimes heroic motivations. Sometimes they say, well, Judas was a disappointed office seeker and Jesus wasn't giving one on and on and on and on. But I'll tell you this, the man was greedy and he was a thief. Well, let's just look at that in verse five. It says this, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 16, actually in verse 15 specifically, it says that Judas asked the priest this, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Judas was the guy who introduced money into it. It's not like the priest got him and said, hey, we'll give you money if you betray Jesus. Judas approached them and he said, what will you pay me for Jesus? You want a fancy motive? I think that's about as fancy as it gets. He was a thief, he was greedy, and he loved money. And you know what? If we want to forget about Judas' motive, You know what I think is far more fascinating to think about? And I agree, I'm a little bit speculative here, but just grant me this. I I think it's more fascinating to think about Satan's motive in all this. What was Satan thinking about? You and I know that the death of Jesus the Messiah on the cross was the great defeat of Satan. He defeated Satan there. And all the defeat of Satan, past, present, and future, is centered upon that moment where Jesus defeated him on the cross. Then why did the devil steer things towards that course? Why? Well, we do know this. We do know that the devil is not all-knowing. Perhaps the devil didn't have it figured out how things would steer towards that thing. It's certainly possible. He's not omniscient. Nevertheless, we can't say this. The devil knows the Bible, and so he should have known. He should have been able to put the pieces together. You know what I think the best explanation of Satan's motive? Is that Satan, not only is he not all-knowing, but he's also not all-wise. And even if he did know that the death of Jesus the Messiah would crush his head as was promised way back in the Garden of Eden. Even if he knew that, he could not stop himself. Hatred got the best of him. I mean, after all, Satan is a liar and he's the great deceiver. And you want to know something that's characteristic of many liars and great deceivers? They lie to themselves as much as they lie to anybody else. Satan may have told himself the lie so many times that he really believes it. I've got a chance. You know, I can make this work. 
I can win this in the end. And it may very well be that he continues on with such energy and effort in his malevolent work today because he still believes the same kind of lies. So anyway, look at it here down as it ends up in verse 6. It says, so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him. God was going to use the wicked works of Judas because, ladies and gentlemen, this is one of the most wicked deeds that has ever been perpetuated on this earth. When Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples, whom Jesus had loved so much and trusted, when he betrayed and when he, so to speak, stabbed Jesus in the back, it was a wicked, wicked thing. Yet, nevertheless, God would use the wicked act of Judas for his own glory. Now, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. And they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you, carrying a pitcher of water. Which, by the way, was unusual. From what I understand, men did not normally carry pitchers of water. When men carried liquids, or they carried them in skins. It was a woman's work or place to normally carry things in a pitcher of water. So it would have been a little bit unusual, so it would have been noticeable. So you'll meet a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them and they prepared the Passover. So you get the scene here. Jesus dispatches two of his disciples, John and Peter. Okay, go fix everything up for Passover because the Passover meal had its own ritual. It wasn't just like you get takeout somewhere and do it. No, it had to be arranged. It had to be a a ceremony set up for it. Things had to be arranged. And they had to have a room, which, by the way, would not be easy to find in Jerusalem with so many people there celebrating Passover. I mean, not to make light of it, but it would have been hard to get a reservation in a restaurant. Would have been hard to find a banquet hall available or, or, you know, something in a room. I mean, it just would have been very difficult. But Jesus had it all arranged, apparently with a disciple that he'd already made something uh, arranged. And so what did they go in? Oh, look for the guy. You know, it almost sounds like a spy novel. Look for the guy carrying the pitcher of water. Say to him, the blackbird sings at midnight, you know, and if he responds this, then follow him and follow him into the place where he's going. I can just imagine the guy in the picture. Why are these two guys following me? What's going on here? Maybe they're going to rob me when I step in the house. But when you go into the house, then speak to the master of the house and tell him the teacher has need of these things. Oh, okay. Well, then I know you're with Jesus. Let me show you the room and you guys can start, you know, chopping up the vegetables for dinner. I mean, that's basically it. They were going to arrange everything for the Passover dinner. But please understand. Even though it's kind of interesting and, you know, we like the details of all this. Think of how moving this must have been for Jesus. You see, Passover remembers the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And that deliverance of Israel from Egypt was what you might call the central act of redemption in the Old Testament. All over again, repeatedly throughout all the Old Testament, God says to Israel, I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. That is the central act of redemption that God calls his people back to remember all the time in the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus knew that with his death on the cross, he would establish a new center of redemption. 
So no longer would it be, I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt, although that still remains true, but now it would be, I'm the God who died on the cross to pay for your sins. This had to be a very moving connection between Passover and the work that Jesus would do on the cross. And so he says right there, verse 11, I'm going to eat Passover with my disciples. Verse 14, and when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him and he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine until the kingdom of God comes. Do you catch the passion and the depth of those words that Jesus said there in verse 15, with fervent desire, I have desired. It was a passionate moment for Jesus. It's not just like he's saying goodbye to his disciples. That's almost the smallest part of it. Goodbye, guys, I'll be gone in a few days. It's not that. It's that he knew that he was going to embark on the central purpose for why he came to earth. This was the moment It was like everything had been focused upon the moment that was going to arrive in a very short period of time. And he knew that as he left the earth after his resurrection, that all he would leave behind were these men. And it's like, man, I've taught you so much these last three years. I want you to be united right now. You mean so much to me. You are my heritage that I'm leaving behind. I, I need to pour this into you and... There were other important things that he had to teach them. You know that Judas had already promised to betray Jesus. You also know that Jesus made these almost secretive arrangements for where he was going to have Passover with his disciples. You know, it, it all seems kind of secret agency-ish, right? Well, why? Because it was very important to Jesus that nobody know where they're going to meet until the moment that they meet because he did not want Judas to betray him too soon. My heart is filled with things that I have to pour out to my disciples. Now, Jesus did pour out his heart to the disciples and that's why I'm giving you a homework assignment. Read the Gospel of John, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16 and 17. Those five chapters in greater depth than we find in Matthew, Mark, or Luke contain what Jesus had to tell his disciples before Judas betrayed him. And it's almost like this. After he poured this out, this outpouring of his heart to his disciples, then fine, okay, Judas, come and get me. That's fine. And it was a short time after that that he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because no i got to give this last briefing, this last teaching, this last outpouring of my heart to my own. And so verse 17 says that in the midst of the Passover dinner that they celebrated together, that he took the cup. Now what's interesting about this is in just a few verses, we're going to see that he takes the cup again. And it seems that Jesus took the cup both before and after he distributed the bread. But this is nothing unusual. According to the customs of a Passover dinner, there were normally four different cups of wine ceremonially sipped during the meal. 
So during one of the first cups of the meal, Jesus holds it up before them and he says this. Look at that in verse 18. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now he doesn't mean he's not going to drink of it right then. Of course he did. But what he said, guys, I'm waiting for the real messianic banquet. Right now you sit down at a banquet with the Messiah. But all the Hebrew scriptures and all the anticipation of the prophets looked forward to this great banquet that the Messiah would have with his people at the end of the days. And he said, that's what I'm looking forward to. And I long for that. I'm not going to celebrate this again until we celebrate it together in the kingdom of God at what is known in the book of Revelation as the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what I look forward to. That's what my heart is set upon. And then in verse 19, Jesus did something so remarkable that we need to pay attention to it. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Do you get the picture? There at the Passover dinner. Please remember, this was part of a Passover dinner. And Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. Now please, friends, these are all parts of just a normal Passover ritual. I I don't know if you've ever been part of a Passover Seder, either a real Jewish Passover Seder dinner, or or sometimes Christians like to do a reenactment and sort of a walkthrough of a a Passover Seder, but there's a whole ceremony surrounding a Passover Seder, both in ancient times and today in modern times as well. And, And they said everything of the Passover dinner, the bread, the lamb, or today they normally use chicken, but the bread, the the lamb, you know, the, the bitter herbs, the egg, everything has a symbolic meaning. Everything teaches something. Everything speaks to something. And do you realize how radical it was for Jesus to hold the bread up in front of his disciples? And these guys had celebrated, you know, 20, 30, 40 of Passovers before this. Okay, the bread, we know what that means. We do this every year. Jesus said, no. You see, instead of praying the normal prayer, this was the normal prayer, the head of the meal would say this over the bread. This is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. Isn't that beautiful? That's a beautiful thing. I mean, the the Passover Seder is a very beautiful and moving um, dinner, commemoration of Passover. Do you realize how radical it was when Jesus held that bread up before his disciples? This is my body. Now, by the way, it was audacious. How audacious would it be to take these things that had been accepted and taught and commemorated for more than a thousand years, thousands of years, and say, I'm going to reinterpret them in front of you right here, right now. This bread, this is my body. You see, the Passover created a nation. 
you could say that a slave mob was freed from Egypt and it became a nation. This new Passover is also going to create a people. Those who are united in Jesus Christ, who remember and trust in his sacrifice. So he holds it up in front of them. In verse 19, he says, this is my body which is given for you. And then he holds up the cup, one of the cups of wine before them. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And in doing that, he, he did not give the normal explanation for these things according to the Passover uh, ceremony. No. He reinterpreted them in himself. And he said, with this meal right now, we do not focus on what happened thousands of years ago in Egypt, as wonderful as that was. Now we focus on what I am going to do in less than 24 hours. You know, nowhere in the Passover ritual do you find somebody saying, this is my body. It it must have stunned the disciples. What is he talking about? We've never celebrated a Passover dinner like this. And Jesus did this with such dramatic effect so that we would remember what he did for us. When we take that bread, and you look at it, because it was matzah, basically, that Jesus held up before them. It wasn't wonder bread. It wasn't King's Hawaiian bread. Although, look, I, it's not like I, I have no condemnation of people who take uh, communion with any kind of bread that's available. But matzah bread, you look at it. It's broken. It's pierced. It's bruised in the discoloration. This is my body. He holds up a cup of wine, and he says, listen, this is my blood, even as it's going to be poured out my life poured out on Calvary. So this is how we remember Jesus, but don't miss the image. This is how we fellowship with him. When we take communion, it's as if Jesus invites us to come and eat at his table. Now you and I know today that it is a significant social thing to eat with another person. I mean, really, I mean, when a, when a man's dating a woman, commonly, well, they'll go out to dinner. I mean, it's, it's just, it's a social thing that we do among people. And we understand that in our culture, but listen, you've got to amplify that a lot in ancient culture. In ancient culture, it was a very powerful thing that people who share your table with you, man, you are a community, you are a family. This is something sacred. You eat together with people, there's a bond there. And it's as if Jesus says, come, let's eat together. Let's connect. Let's have fellowship. I love you, Jesus says. I want you to come to my table. And that's a powerful thing. Notice it again, verse 19. This is my body which is given for you. Verse 20. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. You know, the precise understanding of those words of Jesus have been the cause of a lot of controversy among Christians through the centuries. The Roman Catholic Church holds the idea, which the theological word is transubstantiation, which teaches that the bread and the wine actually become the body and the blood of Jesus. They actually become that. The bread is no longer bread, though it looks like bread, it tastes like bread, it feels like bread, it's no longer bread, it is the actual body of Jesus. The wine, 
in the cup, even though it looks like wine, tastes like wine, smells like wine, the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation says it is the actual blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Martin Luther held the idea of consubstantiation, which teaches that the bread remains bread and the wine remains wine, but by faith, they are the same as Jesus' actual body. Martin Luther did not believe in the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, but he didn't go very far from it. But the whole idea of transubstantiation introduced a lot of complexity. For hundreds and hundreds of years, when a lay person was to take communion in a Roman Catholic church or in a Roman Catholic service, they would not allow the lay person to have the cup and receive the cup because they thought it was too risky. What if they spill it and you spill and commit sacrilege by spilling the blood of Jesus? What if they spit it out or let a little bit dribble down their their mouth? So they would only give the wafer to the laity. Well, many of the reformers didn't think that was right. And Martin Luther was one of them. So he gave a slightly modified idea of what it was. Not transubstantiation, but consubstantiation. John Calvin taught that Jesus' presence in the bread and the wine was real, but only spiritual, not physical. Ulrich Zwingli, the Swiss reformer, he taught that the bread and wine were significant symbols that represent the body and blood of Jesus. When the Swiss reformer Zwingli and the German reformer Luther got together at a place called Marburg to sort of discuss their different theologies and see, because they developed along different lines, they got together at Marburg and they discussed the whole thing and they went over this point of theology, you know, what about salvation? What about the interests of the scriptures? What about Jesus? What about this? And in theological points, we agree, we agree, we agree, we agree. All through, it was a wonderful time, a great fellowship and agreement. Everybody was all excited and then they got to the idea of communion. And they were talking, well, what, what does communion mean? And Luther insisted that there must be some kind of physical presence of Jesus in the bread and the cup because Jesus said, this is my body. Matter of fact, he insisted on it over and over again. He wrote on the velvet of his tablecloth, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body in Latin. Well, Zwingli said, well, Martin, listen, man, I love you, but look, let's remember this. Jesus also said, I am the door. I am the vine. And we know exactly what Jesus meant. And Luther could be kind of hot-headed. So this is what he replied to to Zwingli. He said, listen, I don't care if Jesus told me to eat dung. Except he didn't say dung. He used a harsher word. I don't care if Jesus told me to eat dung. I would eat it if he told me to eat it. And he said, Zwingli, You are of another spirit. And they broke up with a lot of disillusionment over this one thing. You want to know what's kind of, I don't know if it's funny or tragic. But years later, somebody showed Luther Calvin's understanding of the meaning of communion. And Calvin and Zwingli weren't exactly the same, but almost. Almost. And Luther looked over what Calvin said about communion. He goes, yeah, it looks okay to me. Luther was a guy who could get caught up in the moment. But listen, scripturally, I think we can say this. 
that the bread and the cup are not mere symbols, but they are powerful pictures to enter into, to partake of, as we see the Lord's table as the new Passover. We need to approach the table of the Lord saying, Jesus, I need you inside of me. And so just like I eat this piece of bread and drink this piece of, uh, drink this cup, I need you in your presence to fill me, to be in my innermost being. I don't need to rub the bread on my arm. I don't need to sprinkle the contents of the cup upon my head. I need you inside of me. I need you to fill my innermost being. And Jesus, would you do that in my life all over again? But then notice what Jesus said in verse 20. This is genuinely remarkable. I I wonder if jaws did not drop in the room. It was already crazy that he was reinterpreting the bread and the cup. But now he says something even more. Verse 20, he said this. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. That's an astounding statement. Because he announced right then the institution of a new covenant. No mere man could ever institute the new covenant. It was God's covenant with man. And he had the authority to establish this and to seal it with his own blood. You know, the new covenant is all about the promises of God in the Old Testament regarding the new covenant being fulfilled by the work of Jesus Christ. For example, the new covenant promises an inner transformation that cleanses us from all sin. Jeremiah 31, 34 says this, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's part of the new covenant. The new covenant talks about the transformation that puts the word of God within us in a radical way. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, I will put their law in my minds and write it on their hearts. And the new covenant is all about a new, close relationship with God. As it says in Jeremiah 31, 33, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And Jesus says, this is no longer a promise that the prophets made. It is real. What I'm going to do in less than 24 hours, when my blood is actually spilt, this will institute the new covenant. And so you can say that the blood of Jesus made the new covenant. You can imagine what a moving, what a, what a stirring thing this was for the disciples. If they had any spiritual recognition at all, their minds were blown. But look at what he says next in verse 21. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Verse 21, Behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. The man who's going to betray me has the audacity to eat at this table with me right now. That shows what a low-down, cunning Horrible man he is, that he will sit at my table, our Passover collectively, and yet he will still betray me. Now, you know, if you really want the fuller account of this, you've got to go to the Gospel of John. 
And Luke tells us just pretty much the strong statement that Jesus makes. But you need to understand this. In the Gospel of John, John highlights the love that Jesus expressed towards Judas. It's as if Jesus pled with Judas, don't do it. It's not too late. You haven't left yet. Don't do it. But Judas did. Now I have to say there's something kind of fascinating, or at least it's fascinating to me, First of all, we notice this. It says in verse 22, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. It was determined by prophecy that the Messiah would be betrayed, such as in Psalm chapter 4, verse 19. Now, you might say this. Well, if it was determined, can't Judas just say, hey, I I should be praised You're saved by the work of Jesus on the cross? That doesn't happen without me. Uh, Fulfilling, I'm just fulfilling prophecy when I send Jesus to the cross. Didn't the scripture say he was being betrayed? Look, I'm just doing this. But no, notice what Jesus said. Did you notice that? He said it right there in verse 22. Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas, it doesn't let you off the hook one bit. Yes, you send me to to the cross to fulfill my life's work. Yes, yes, you are fulfilling prophecy. But all the while, it's still your free choice and you go your own way. Now, if you notice, number one, it seems that Judas is still among them. You know, one of the fascinating questions I have about the Last Supper and the whole scene there in the upper room, did Jesus serve communion to Judas? From Luke, it seems like he did. I know that people construct arguments one way or another, and you know, if you catch me next week, if I'm studying a different book of the Bible, say, well, I'm not so sure now. I might go back, but isn't it fascinating? Luke seems to present it that, yes, he was there. But secondly, notice this. Verse 23 says, they began to question among themselves which of them it was. In other words, they didn't all immediately look to Judas and go, yeah, him. They're like, who? Who could it be? This shows you how crafty Judas was. They didn't all immediately suspect him, which you would have thought if he was, you know, the way that we like to think of Judas. The Judas I have in my mind is very obviously the betrayer. But that's not the Judas that really was. He was very crafty. Verse 24. Okay, here we are in this holy moment of the Passover dinner. And what happens? Now, there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Can you just let that sink in for a moment? This apparently was a favorite topic of conversation among the disciples. I'm better than you. No, you're not better. I'm better than you. And at this holy moment there that Jesus, and you can just imagine Jesus going, oh man. Oh man. You know, you can just imagine Jesus like, ugh. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. This absolutely blows my mind. 
I'll tell you how it would have been, you know, we always say, well, if I were Jesus, and of course, it's the craziest thing in the world to talk about that, but. Okay, look, if I were Jesus, they start arguing at the Last Supper, who's the greatest? Whoa, whoa, guys, hey, hey, back to me here. Quiet down just for a minute. I've been with you for three years. Have not you morons figured it out yet that I'm the greatest? Why are you even having this discussion? Wouldn't that be the way of God? I mean, just just about any of us might call it to that. No, no, no. Look Look at how patient Jesus is. Matter of fact, we know from the Gospel of John that Jesus did not merely answer this question by his words. He also answers this question by his actions. What did he do? He took off his nice dinner garment, put on the garment of a servant, and he went around and washed their feet one by one. How loving, how patient, how beautiful of Jesus to do this. You know, when we think that Jesus would be so overly frustrated with the disciples and say, that's it, I can't take anymore, which, by the way, there might be one of these moments a little bit later on in the chapter, but we won't get to it yet. Instead, he says, no, guys, I love you. I care about you. Let me tell you about what it is to be great. Verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Guys, I love you, but your idea about power and greatness and what's important in this world, it's all carnal. It's all from this world. It's all like the kings of the Gentiles things. You've you got to understand, in my kingdom, it's different. In my kingdom, the greatest should be like the younger. The younger has no stake in the system, no investment in the status quo. He's the younger. It's the firstborn that gets all the goodies, not the younger. No, the greatest should be like the one who, who is, is, is the one who serves, not the one who is served. And then he says, who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? And the disciples go, well, yeah. The one who's being served, he's the greater one, right? Whenever I think of this, I think of cultures that always try to find ways to show that a person is great and doesn't need to do things for himself. It's my understanding, I don't know if this is just a legend or whatever, but I'm understanding an ancient Chinese culture Uh, men would grow their fingernails to extreme lengths where they couldn't do anything with their hands. You just just can't do anything because you'd break the fingernail. I guess that happens when you grow them long, as my wife often tells me. So you you, you just, they they would have these extremely long fingernails. And it wasn't because it was practical. No, it was because it was impractical. It was a way to say, I don't need to do a single thing for myself. With these fingernails, I can barely put food in my mouth. But who cares? I've got servants to put food in my mouth. It was a way to say, everybody serves me. I don't have to serve anybody. But listen, the people who are really great in our life are the servants. Isn't it true? Look, the president goes on vacation for a month. Who cares? Nobody notices. How about if the trash man went on vacation for a month and didn't pick up your garbage for a month? You'd be hurting, wouldn't you? We think of these grand ideas, but no, it really is true. It's the servants who are the greatest. And then Jesus answered the question so powerfully in verse 27, and we'll end it with this tonight. Yet I am among you as the one who serves. He demonstrated it with his life. He showed it in all his actions, but he said, man, I am among you as one who serves. 
I believe, I, I don't know that I live it, but I believe that living as a servant is truly the best way to live. I mean, after all, you don't walk around with hurt feelings, with disappointed expectations, because all you want to do is serve. If you really want to serve, you can always do what you want to do, because everybody loves servants. Cross-culturally, do you know how easy it is to go to other cultures with the heart and mind of a servant and fit in? Servants are loved everywhere that they go. It's really the best way to live. Jesus did not mean here that if you serve in a lowly place, you'll always be given a great place. He meant that in God's eyes, the lowly place is the great place. And it's fascinating and powerful to us that Jesus lived this so much. Let me just conclude with a quote from Spurgeon. He said this. King of kings is a title full of majesty. But servant of servants is the name which our Lord preferred when he was here on earth below. Jesus never announced himself as king of kings during his earthly ministry. Revelation says that about him. It's true of him. But how did he define himself? I am among you as one who serves. I painfully push the pause button on our study through Luke chapter 22 because we're in so deep. We just have to pause here and come back to it next week. But we are in a field of diamonds and gems. Let's come back to it next week. Father in heaven, We need Jesus to serve us. We need his service in our life. We need him to wash us from our sins, to wash our feet from the dirt that comes from interaction with this world. We need his cleansing, his washing. We need it in our life. So Jesus, even though sometimes it's harder to allow you to serve us, we just say that Jesus, come, we receive your service unto us and we pray that it would be so transforming that we would want to be like you and serve others. Help us to fulfill this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.